Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. Hebrews 12, 1 through 3, starting a new sermon series today. I'm really excited about it, a little anxious about it too, and you'll find out why as it, as it goes on. But what I'm praying for this message that's going to set up the rest of the series is that it serves for all of us as sort of a, a mid-course checkup. If you're on a trip, and it's a long trip, and you've never been there before, every once in a while, you need to stop and look around and go, okay, am I still heading in the right direction? You ever made that mistake where you drive hours in the wrong direction? Well, hopefully this is one of those Sundays where God's going to speak to us and just confirm to us whether we need to switch directions, whether we need to make an adjustment or not, uh, because that's important to do. Hebrews 12, 1 through 3. My brother um, is four years younger than me. We're the only two kids in the family, and so we grew up together. And when two siblings grow up together, oftentimes they'll have a lot of things that, about them that are different, right? Two kids can be very, very much the opposite. My brother, uh, if he walked in here today, you would say, yeah, that's just brother. They look a lot alike. And then you'd get close to him and you'd realize he's six foot one. My little brother. And uh, I, on the other hand, am less than six foot one. So uh, he, is, he is also a country guy. Uh, he lives about a mile from my parents, a mile from where we grew up. He's lived in that area most of his life, whereas I've lived in the big cities for most of my adult life. And it could have to do with this other difference. He married a girl from our hometown. I married a girl from Spring. And so uh, that, that's another difference. He's an architect, my brother recently completed a, a long project uh, in which he designed and oversaw the construction of new buildings, new school buildings on every school campus in our hometown. So every child that grows up in our hometown for, for the foreseeable future will go to school in a, in a building my brother built, which is pretty cool. I, on the other hand, need detailed written instructions and sometimes a YouTube video to put together stuff I buy at Home Depot, okay? Uh, and that's not an exaggeration. Um, and another difference between us, and this is hard for me to say, but he's a better athlete than I am. And that's really hard for me to admit because growing up, nothing was more important to me than sports. I, I was one of those little guys, and there are some probably sitting in here right now, but if you would have talked to me when I was 9, 10, 11 years old, I could have told you the starting lineup of every Major League Baseball team. If it was the fall, I could have told you every score of every important football game that last week. I mean, I just was into it. That was my life. And I didn't just watch it. I loved playing. If kids were out playing some kind of game, I wanted to be part of it. I played all the time. I just wasn't I don't know, what's the word? I wasn't good. You know, I just, I wasn't that good at athletics. And my brother, on the other hand, was a natural athlete. He was tall, he was fast, he had incredible coordination, and he was just good at everything. And so it was a shock to us when, I think it was his sophomore year of high school, he announced to us as a family that he wasn't going to play any more sports except for track and cross country. He was just going to focus on running long distances from now on. And I don't know how my dad felt about that. He was pretty supportive, but um, I was really mad at my brother about that because I was looking forward to living vicariously through him for the next three years. And I told him, I remember, telling, I remember saying these words. I said, if God gave me your body, I'd have been all district in at least four sports. And, and I said, you're, you're wasting something precious. I can't believe you're doing this. But my brother proved that he knew better than I did because he ran hard and he ran well. His senior year, he medaled at the state meet and he earned a college scholarship in track and field. And so he showed me, right? 
And, and that meant that over the next few years, I went to a lot of track meets and a lot of cross-country meets. I learned a lot about running. Doesn't make me a great runner now, but intellectually, I know a lot of things about running. And one of the things I learned from him was that if you really want to run well, you don't leave anything on the track. So if you've ever gone to a middle distance type event, like a 5K, or if you've gone to a track meet and you watch them run the mile or the two mile, what you'll see sometimes is some of the runners at the end, on that last stretch, they'll run really hard, they'll pick up speed, they'll get what we call a finishing kick. What my brother taught me was, if you've got a kick at the end, then you saved up too much. If, you, if you've got a kick at the end, you weren't running hard enough. You need to run so hard that when you cross the finish line, you've got nothing left. You need to leave it all on the track. And many times I saw my brother run and win a race, and as soon as he crossed the finish line, he collapsed. And they'd have to drag him off because he didn't have any energy, any strength left. And once or twice, I was there at the finish line, and I got to catch him and, and kind of drag him off. Um, but I say all that because we're going to read Hebrews 12, verses 1 through 3 today. This is a great chapter of the Bible, y'all. I, I, wish, I wish I had time to do the whole chapter. Someday, I'm sure, the, uh, I will come back and do this entire chapter. It's one of the great chapters in Scripture. But verses 1 through 3 talk about how life is a race. And that's not the only place in the Scripture that metaphor is used, but it's one of the most picturesque. And I want you to think about this before we read the Scripture. If life is a race, then what matters is how you run. Sounds obvious, doesn't it? But we get distracted by lots of other things. If you're in high school, junior high, or a young adult in college, you just need to understand that when the race is over, it's over. There's no do-overs. So when the race ends... It really won't matter what you made in Algebra 2, and it won't matter who you went to prom with, and it won't matter if that girl that's really cool won't talk to you, and it really, really won't matter what college you got into. If you're, if you're in your career years right now, just understand, on the day your race ends, you really won't care whether you got that promotion or whether you were able to buy that house you wanted or whether your salary reached the six figures or not or whether your kid made all-stars. That's not going to matter. And if you're in your retirement years right now, on the day your race ends, you're not going to be thinking about how big your 401k was, and you're not going to be thinking about uh, where your grandkids lived, and you're not going to be thinking about whether you checked off all the things on your bucket list. What's going to matter on that day, no matter who you are, is how you ran the race. And you're going to want to be able to say to your Lord, God, I know I wasn't the best runner out there. I know there were people who were faster, who were stronger but I ran with everything that I had. And I can honestly say, I gave you my everything. I left it all on the track. I've got no regrets. Will you be able to say that? Because that makes all the difference in whether you're going to live a life that's fulfilling now, that's full of joy now, and adventure and excitement and purpose, or whether you're going to live a life that you're going to struggle through, where you're constantly grasping for things that you can't reach a life that you'll regret for all of eternity, even if your soul is saved. You'll spend eternity thinking, but I wasted the, the few years I had in this world. So let's read what it means to run the race well in, in Hebrews 12. Therefore, since we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. So 
There is so much there that I can't talk about today. Trust me, I'm going to preach on this, sub, on this text again someday. But I want to focus on, on three commands in this passage that tell us how to run the race well, how to live life that matters. And we're going to do it backwards. We're going to do it starting with the third one and working back up to the first. And I have my reasons. One of my reasons is that first one that we're going to look at, the, the last one we're going to look at that's mentioned first, are you confused yet? It's going to set us up for the rest of this series, for the rest of this the next seven or eight weeks. So what is, Paul, what, is, what is the author of Hebrews, because Paul didn't write Hebrews, what does the author of Hebrews tell us about running the race of life well? The third thing he says is, look to your example. Look to your example. When my brother was a runner, when he was in high school, his coach was also a runner. And I know that's not unusual. If you ever played any sport, there's a pretty good chance that your coach also played that sport. But here's the thing. I played football in high school, and my coaches were former football players, but none of them were still strapping on pads and making tackles and scoring touchdowns. They left that behind years ago. This guy who coached my brother was still actively running. And in fact, when he was still in his 30s and 40s, he'd get out and run with his teams, especially for cross-country practice. He would pace them. They were literally following their leader. Now, Jesus, we're told twice in this passage to look at him. We're told twice looking to Jesus, consider him who endured. Nobody ever ran the race of life better than Jesus did. The only human being who ever lived a perfect, sinless life. But I want you to notice, it never says Look to Jesus as your example because he lived such a good life, and you should try to live a good life too. We're not told that because we can't. Nobody can live that way except Jesus. We're not even told, look to Jesus as your example because he had a great relationship with his Father, and you need that great relationship too. That's also true, but that's not what we're told here. Look what it says in verse 3. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself. What is that talking about? It's talking about the cross. We just got through with a long series of sermons about the meaning of the cross and the horror of the cross. What Jesus went through for us, the physical torment, the emotional pain, the, the, the sense of abandonment by his people, but most of all, that sense of taking on our shame and our guilt and suffering in our place. Jesus literally went through hell on earth for us so that we don't have to. Why is the author of Hebrews telling us, yeah, Jesus is your, is your example. Look how he suffered. Well, I think there's two reasons, and I'm going to save one of them for the end of the sermon, but I'm going to tell you the other one now. I think the reason he tells us that is because he wants us to know life is hard. Jesus, in order to fulfill his purpose, he had to suffer. In order for him to accomplish what he was here to do, in order for him to live a meaningful life, he had to suffer for our sins. Otherwise, his life would not have been a success, no matter how sinless he was. And he's trying to tell us, if you're going to run the race of life and you're going to run it successfully, if you're going to accomplish your purpose in this world, there's going to be some suffering involved. There's going to be some hardship. Do you know that in the first verse when it says, run with endurance, the race set before us, that word race in Greek is the word agon, A-G-O-N, from which we get our English word agony. Have you ever seen a long-distance runner who looked happy? No, they look miserable because it's hard work. Guys, you won't hear this from most preachers, okay? You won't hear this in most American preaching today. You hear instead, 
Hey, here's three good tips so you can live a happy, well-adjusted life. Come to our church. Donate to our ministry. God's going to bless you. You're going to have so much more than your neighbor. And then you read this. See, the Bible doesn't, doesn't hold back from telling us the truth. In order to follow Jesus, yes, salvation is free. But in order to follow Jesus, you do have to do, make some difficult choices. You do have to endure some difficult circumstances at times. Sometimes life seems to be against you. And, and, and you may say, well, how is that encouraging? You're depressing the crud out of me. Well, think about it this way. Anything you've ever accomplished in life took hard work, didn't it? It wasn't handed to you. If you knew someone who was starting college tomorrow, would you go up to them and say, hey, college is a breeze, just, uh, you know, Take classes you're interested in. Show up when you feel like it. Play ultimate Frisbee out in, the, out in the quad all night long. Play cards. Enjoy life. Party. Drink. Do whatever you want to do, and you're going to do great. No, that's, that's a perfect recipe for failure. Instead, you need to sit down with them and say, listen, you're not in high school anymore. That means you better show up to all your classes. You better pay attention, take notes. That means you better stay on top of your assignments. Don't get behind. If you ever feel lost or overwhelmed, by all means, go speak to your professor. Let them know. You can do this. It's not going to be easy, but you can do this. Or let's say you know a young woman who is thinking of having a baby. Now, do you go up to her and you say, listen, it's going to be great. Because you get to eat everything you want. You get to gain all the weight you want. Everybody thinks you're beautiful because a pregnant woman's always beautiful, right? And you, you, know, you, you get all these showers with all these presents and all this free stuff. And then, boom, out pops the baby and, and it's magical and it's beautiful and he's your best friend for life. Only if you want that woman to hate you in three months, right? When her ankles are swollen and, and she's got this small human pressing down on every organ in her body every time she lays down and, and then... And then there's false labor, and then there's real labor, and then the real fun starts. You know, that she needs to know, listen, this is going to be the hardest thing you've ever done, but it's worth it. Listen, there are going to be times you're going to want to give up. Don't give up. It's worth it. That's exactly what the author of Hebrews is saying to us, because right now, I guarantee you, and I don't know who, the, who it is, but I guarantee you there are people in this room right now who are thinking, I thought the Christian life was supposed to be abundant. I'm struggling and so you need to hear right now, what you're going through is not unusual. It's not the whole life. It's not always like this, but there will be times of struggle. And what the author of Hebrews is saying is, look at Jesus. He went to the cross for the joy set before him. He endured that suffering so that on the other side, he could say, it is finished. And he could open wide the gates of heaven and say, everybody, everybody who wants me can spend eternity with me. It's, it's hard, but it's worth it. Second thing he says, is get rid of entangling sins. The way it's put in the ESV, which we're reading out of right now, is get rid of the sin which clings so closely. All of us are sinners, right? Every single one of us. Am I right? We're all sinners? Can we all admit that? But all of us, our little mix of sins manifests itself differently. See, the, this idea of this, this racing metaphor the idea of sins that cling so closely, I picture, I picture a runner who's finely conditioned, who's incredibly talented, long legs, strong muscles, but around her waist is a rope that's tied to a bag full of bricks. And so every race, even though she's the best runner in the race, she finishes last. And everybody says, man, she could run so well if she could get rid of those bricks. And all of us have those sins that cling closely to our lives. And my bag of bricks looks different than your bag of bricks. You know what I'm talking about? 
And somebody can look at you and, and they can judge you for your bag of bricks, but they're not looking at theirs. They can look at you and say, boy, he'd be a great husband and father if he just did something about that temper of his. She'd be a wonderful life group leader, but man, she's just so negative. She just doesn't show any grace. But it's hard for them to look at their own bag and say, yeah, I've got problems with lust. Yeah, I've got problems with greed. I, I struggle with feelings of resentment for people who have hurt my feelings in the past. What are you doing about the bricks you're dragging around that are slowing you down, that are keeping you from being all you can be in Christ? You have to get honest about those things. And unless you have some really, really courageous and bold and faithful friends who will confront you lovingly, you probably don't have anybody in your life who will do that except the Holy Spirit. And you haven't learned to listen to Him yet, if you're like most of us. So here's my challenge to you. Pray and say, Lord, what should I be confessing before you today? What, should, what sins should I be addressing head on? Not making excuses for, but saying, Lord, here's where I need help. I think every Christian, every person in this room, every person who calls themselves by the name of Jesus should have a list of at least five things that they're constantly asking God to change about their character. And if you can't come up with five things, ask someone who knows you. And ask the Holy Spirit to reveal it to you and talk to God about those things constantly until one day you can look up and say, okay, Lord, I can check this thing off the list because I'm not struggling in that area anymore, so what else do I need to add to the list? The sins that easily entangle, the sins that cling so closely, and then there's number one. The first thing he mentions is lay aside every weight every weight. Now, you'll be relieved to know this is not a message about weight loss, because God, God really doesn't care that much about how you and I look. What it's about is running our best. Some of you remember when you were in school and you, you studied about ancient Greece, and you can probably remember the moment when you laughed out loud, when you found out from your teacher that the ancient Greeks in the original Olympic Games ran in the nude. That's a funny thing to imagine, isn't it? Please don't imagine it. Um, and, and thankfully, we don't do that anymore, although some of you who are my age or older remember we had a president about 20 years ago who liked to jog in some really revealing running shorts. That was a national trauma for us. Um, but, but otherwise, we don't. our running gear these days is different. It's tight-fitting, lightweight, eliminate all wind drag, have you ever held a pair of running shoes in your hand? They're like a feather, even though they cushion the feet perfectly. And you see elite runners, they're not carrying any extra weight around their middles either. They are, they are in every way optimized for speed. What the author of Hebrews is talking about here when he says lay aside every weight, he's not talking about sin in your life. Because he addresses that when he says, and the sin that clings so closely. He's talking about things that can be seen as neutral or good, but that slow us down, that hold us back, that keep us from pursuing Christ with all we have, that keep us from living life abundant. Now, I'm going to switch gears here, and I'm going to go from a racing metaphor to something else. Some of you saw a video that James made this week to preview this sermon, so you've probably heard this story, but I'm going to tell you anyway. When our daughter Kaylee was a little bitty girl, she wasn't even three yet, she got a thorn or a splinter in this little meaty part of her palm. And she would not let us touch it. 
She would not let us touch her hand or get close to her, um, and we sort of let her be for a while. We thought she'll come to us when it hurts her bad enough, but she got to where she was walking around with her hand pressed against her stomach because it hurt too bad for it to contact something else, and every once in a while we'd see that palm. It was bright red. She was doing everything. She was playing with her toys with one hand, and Carrie said to me, we got to do something, and so we had to have a radical intervention, and it was hard. What it meant was I had to hold that child's hand completely still while Carrie went after it with a needle. And when I say I had to hold it perfectly still, I mean, keep in mind, I had 150 pounds on this kid. This was when I was in my 20s. I was working out every day. I was a pretty strong guy. And yet every muscle I had was needed to hold that hand still because I had to be careful not to crush her with my weight while still holding it completely still. And Carrie's a very gentle person, and she's trying her best to get that thorn out. And y'all don't even understand the kind of sounds that were coming out of this child at that point. The, the, the sheer anguish, the screaming, the pleading, because she's very articulate. And it was so traumatic that when it was finally over, both of us were in tears. But within a day, her hand had healed and it was perfectly fine. And I tell you that to say this, all of us, every single one of us, we have stuff embedded deep within our hearts and souls. Things that we don't want to deal with, things that we don't want other people to talk about or notice, and we certainly don't want to be confronted about them. And what I'm talking about is our idols. I'm talking about idolatry in the heart of every human being. And those idols, just like that thorn, was, was, was making my daughter sick and would have eventually made her very sick. These idols are destroying us. And I know if you've ever been to church before or if you've ever read the Bible, you know that in the Old Testament, idolatry is a key topic. And it's the first two, it's the first two of the Ten Commandments deal with the idea of idolatry. Have no gods before me and don't make any graven images. And, and Israel, the Israelites had this bad habit of, yeah, we'll worship Yahweh on the Sabbath day and we'll worship God at Passover and we'll go to the temple and we'll act like good Jews. But we'll also have our shrines up on the mountaintops and on the hillsides and under the spreading trees where we'll go and we'll offer our sacrifices to Baal and Molech and, and Asherah because, you know, it's good to have your butts covered, right? And eventually that mentality, that, that idea that I'll give God some but not all, that destroyed the nation of Israel. And you might be sitting there saying, okay, I, I get it, Jeff, but I don't, I don't have any other gods I worship. I'm a Christian. I worship Jesus, period. I don't have any statues to, that I bow down to. I don't have any shrines where I offer sacrifices. And I'm telling you, you're wrong. Now, you may not physically kill a calf on an altar, but you make sacrifices every day for the idols in your heart. An idol is not just something that identifies itself as a deity. An idol is anything that you sacrifice for. An idol is anything that you trust and obey in a way that you should only trust and obey God. It's anything that you, that you allow to do for you what only God should do. Give you security. Give you peace. Give you happiness. Give you a, a sense of purpose in life. Anything, basically, here's a test. If you can think of anything in your life and you know if that thing was suddenly gone, you're not sure you could go on living? If the idea that that might be gone gives you a sense of deep anxiety, then there's a pretty good chance that's an idol for you. And what we're going to do in this series over the next several weeks is we're going to look at seven 
of the most common idols in American culture today. And I'm going to list those for you so you can see what I'm talking about. Next week, we're going to talk about the idol of family. We're going to talk about comfort, wealth and success, tribalism. In other words, this idea that my people are what matter most and I have to stand up for my people and against the other people. Uh, Political power is a tremendous idol in our culture today. Romance and sex and the idea that if I can just find that just right person, my soulmate, everything will be fine. And then religion. Yes, religion, even Christian religion can be an idol that draws us away from the one true God. And I have to tell y'all, this is going to be a tough series for you to hear. This is not going to be fun. And yet I want you to come. You're going to be mad at me at times. There are going to be times when you take deep exception to something I say, when you say, okay, preacher, you went too far. And if you, again, I always say this, and I always definitely mean this. If I ever say something and you think you exceeded your biblical authority in saying that, you said something that's extra scripture, please come confront me. But if it's just something that you don't like because it damages or it disturbs one of your idols, I'm sorry, that's my job. My job is to comfort the afflicted, but it's also to afflict the comfortable. So I want you to... I want you to take two challenges. I want you, number one, to commit commit to attending every one of these services. Do what you have to do to be here. If, if you say, Jeff, I, I know that this one Sunday I won't be here. Okay, there's a stream online. There's, there's, there's a podcast. Make sure you listen because you're going to hear some things that are going to challenge you and you need that challenge. Second challenge for you is Ask God for the ability to see yourself honestly. Because just like my little three-year-old daughter did not want to be confronted about the thorn in her hand. Just leave me alone. I'll be fine. That's the way we are about our idols. When somebody starts messing with our idols, we get defensive, we get mad, we deny. You need to be able to, you need to ask God for the ability to see yourself honestly, to be able to say, yes, this is too important in my life. And that's going to bring up some difficult questions. If your idol is your job, then am I saying you have to quit your job? If your idol is your family, am I telling you to make your family, to be there less for your family? What, how does that work? We'll talk about those things. But I, I just want to say, again, think about that image of the thorn in the hand and how that affects someone's life. Right now, there are some of you who are struggling, and you're, you're asking, why, why is there not more joy in my life? I thought this was supposed to be life abundant. And it could well be that it's because you've, you've got some extra weight you're dragging around. You're not running the race like you should because there is something else that's drawing your true worship away from God. And some of you are asking, you know, I, I love my family. I love my friends, and many of them aren't believers, and it seems like I can't have a positive impact on them. They, they just ignore my witness. And I'm not saying, I don't know for sure, but could it not be that it's because you've let something else come between you and God? And that idol is damaging your witness to those people. Yes, it will be painful to study these things. It will be painful to look at yourself with honest eyes, but think about the healing and the joy and the freedom that comes when everything is aligned properly and we're, we're running like we were always meant to run. All right, I said earlier in the sermon that there are two reasons we're told to, to follow the example of Jesus in His death on the cross. I told you about one already. He is our example. He does show us that life is difficult, so we should not give up. 
But here's the other reason, and, and I'm going to close with this. Jesus is not just our example. He's also our champion. See that word when it says that set your eyes on Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. That word founder in Greek is literally the word champion. I mean, that's not the Greek word, but that's what it means. It translates literally as he is the champion of our faith. And as Americans, we use the word champion to refer to someone who wins a race, who wins a league, who wins a a title game. But in the ancient world, a champion was someone who fought on behalf of others. Remember the story of David and Goliath. When the little shepherd boy David steps forward and says, I will fight that nine-foot giant, he's saying, I will be your champion. I will fight on your behalf. So you won't have to fight and die. I will fight instead. Jesus is our champion. Jesus ran the race for us. And that means, see, there's two pieces of good news to this, ser- to this sermon. Number one, there is an example set by Jesus. There is a path that we can follow. There is a way that we can live our lives in such a way that fixing our eyes on him and, and dealing with our sins honestly and handling the things that, that gather around us and slow us down, we can run our race. We can live our lives in such a way we can experience joy and abundance and we can celebrate for all eternity. We can be a blessing to everyone who knows us. That's good news. And you can start living that kind of life today. But you want to hear really, really good news? The really, really good news is Jesus is our champion, and that means he has won for us. And that means that when you stumble and when you lag behind and when you get distracted, and it will happen to all of us, it's not fatal. God doesn't give up on you. God doesn't say, get that kid out and put somebody else in. Your victory is certain in Jesus Christ. And now we run the race out of sheer joy, the joy set before us, and gladly say, Lord, if more of you means less of me, take everything.